Hey, Melissa, what do you have to drink? Well, I have really bad allergies right now and the start of laryngitis, so I would like a glass of water. Water. How about we'll do water and I'll get you uh, some hot tea. Thank you. Okay. All right. Let's do this. Glad to be with you. This is Where is the Love? I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, Melissa, this may be the first episode of the podcast in which uh, our theme song uh, is actually relevant outside of the fact that it's Where is the Love? Uh, Because we have Christine Emba with us to discuss her excellent, excellent new book, Rethinking Sex. And uh, the book comes out Tuesday. We're talking to her on Saturday. You'll hear it on Sunday. Uh, and so this is an exclusive before the release conversation with Christine. We actually just recorded it with her. She's running. She's doing book promotion uh, and and getting ready for what I think is going to be a pretty significant release. We're so glad we got to talk to her. We've known Christine for a while and think the world of her. Uh, she, I don't know what she thinks of us. She loves Saoirse. Uh, <laughs> she loves Sush so much. Big fan of Saoirse. So, I mean, that's the main thing uh, 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 in our book. Uh, but, but yeah, I was really excited to talk with her. But, Melissa, your voice is shot. Uh, and it's it's allergies, right? It's not, you haven't been yelling or anything. No, I, I went a little overzealous with the leaf blower on Tuesday. And my... <laughs> Okay, we had leftover. Sorry, that is just the funniest. <laughs> I really okay. like cleaning our yard. It makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah. And so I leaf blew because we had leftover leaves from this past autumn and they were just driving me wild. And so I went out. <laughs> I, went... <laughs> I can't really laugh. <laughs> Overzealous with the leaf blower. And my Zyrtec went wild. Failed. My Zyrtec said, yep, this is where I check out. This is just too much pollen. So I had an allergy attack. And when I have a big allergy attack, which I do every few years, it attacks my voice box. My um, my throat just gets so irritated. But, but specifically, like, uh, the, the the voice box, whatever you call it. I don't yeah, know. larynx. The larynx. Thank you. I yeah. was, was going to call it the pharynx. And I was like, no, that's the name for the throat, I think. I think we're. I, think we're I don't want to have to fact check this episode, please. Uh, at least not our opening. So let's just let's just go with like your your throat is scratchy. The place uh, where my voice comes out. Very <laughs> irritated. Uh, folks, we're um, uh, so in the top five this week. You'll get uh, an essay that's uh, like an excerpt taken from, adapted from Christine's book. Would encourage you to to uh, to buy the book. It really is worth the read. We burned through it, and we're t- we've been talking about it uh, as we read it. After we finish, we'll be talking about it for months. It's come up in like a number of conversations with yes. friends, uh, uh, even even uh, just in the last week. Um, and so, uh, uh, but you can check out Christine's uh, op-ed. Uh, in reclaiming hope and as always would love you know this uh we do a lot of work uh a lot of work for 
the Reclaiming Hope sort of uh, suite of content, yes. both the podcast, uh, the political brief, Faith in the News, uh, essays, uh, the top five. Uh, and it's all possible because we have such generous supporters. And so uh, to those of you who are paid subscribers, want to thank you uh, to those of you who might be considering uh, be becoming a paid subscriber because you uh, receive and benefit from the work. We'd certainly appreciate you uh, 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 joining us in that way. And you could do so at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Melissa, anything else you want to say before we jump uh, right into this interview with uh, Christine Emba? Alaria's turning one this week. She is. She is. We're doing a birthday party. Yeah, we're doing a birthday party tomorrow, it's which very, is more for us and less for her. But yeah. I'm so excited to decorate tonight. It's very bird-related. Yeah, because she's the uccelletto, which is baby bird in Italian. Yeah, she's our little bird. I can't believe she's not going to be. Okay. Well, I mean, just to be clear, I don't care what the science says. Uh, I, I call my babies my babies long after they're you know, medically babies. Uh, but, you know, the doctors will start, will stop calling her a baby. We'll call like, her a toddler. Yeah, unacceptable. Um, but she is just becoming uh, such a doll. I mean, it's just incredible. And then Saoirse was out. I, folks, I tell you, Saoirse stood at it. We, we visited some friends outside of Philadelphia uh, this morning. And Saoirse stood at an easel and painted for like 25 minutes without making a sound, without disturbing anybody. I mean, it was like watching something beautiful being birthed. So like, I'm like, Melissa, we need to get this girl an easel. Let's 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 uh, dig in here. It was it was so sweet to see her do that. Yes, it's a rarity to get her to stick to something that long because she is three <laughs> years old and her mind is just frenetic. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so very, uh, very exciting week with, with the girls and we'll have family coming up tomorrow and, and, and that'll be good. Uh, but let's get to this interview with Christine. Christine writes about ideas for the Washington Post's opinion, uh, opinion section. Before coming to the Post in 2015, Christine was the Hilton Kramer Fellow in Criticism at the New Criterion and a deputy editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit, focusing on technology and innovation. She grew up in Virginia and holds an AB in Public and International Affairs from Princeton University. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Christine Emba. So Christine, one of the first things that I just thought was quite amazing about this book is your cover. Who came up with this cover? Who chose this? <laughs> Thanks. I think I think the book will be controversial in some ways, but so far everyone has liked the cover art, <laughs> which makes me really happy. Um, it was kind of a, I mean, it was a joint decision. So the process is usually that the publisher will like serve you a couple choices and you can say yes or no. Right. Um, and at first they suggested like several covers that are kind of in the almost traditional nonfiction style, you know, like white with some text and then yeah. like a little icon that represents the, um, and I thought those were really boring, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, and I wanted something just like a little bit more beautiful, frankly. Um, and I love pre-Raphaelite art and mm. this piece by the artist Frederick Sandis just seemed I saw this image and it just immediately jumped out to me because the face that this woman is making is just the face of sheer frustration. 
yes, <laughs> that I think uh, many people feel about the sexual culture right now. And the painting is actually called Love's Shadow. Um, and it's of Sandis's wife slash muse, but it just seemed both kind of humorous and appropriate to the subject matter. And also, I don't know, a little different than yeah. the sort of like colorful blob or the sort of plain white that we see everywhere. So I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, no, it was really great. No, yeah. it was great. It's definitely eye-catching. Um, and then we just want to start off, you know, with the book. Uh, in the introduction, you start off with um, the sort of, sort of what, sex ed type uh, course that you had to take or the orientation class that you had to take when you started right. college um, where they gave you the talk. Um, and, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. And then a little bit later on in the book, yeah, during I think your your um, your research or investigation for this book, you went to another college or university and you sat through sort of the same thing again. And some things had changed and some things hadn't. And I felt like that was really representative um, of some of the things that you're touching on in the book. Um, and besides that, you know, <laughs> that and what we're seeing in the culture, why did you write this book? What inspired it? Yeah. So to be clear, that was the same university oh, yeah. um, that I went to twice. I mean, I sat through the talk at Princeton, you know, when I was a freshman and then my sister, my younger sister is actually, or was actually at the same school and I was reporting this out and went and sort of snuck into her orientation and it remained the same. <laughs> um, and the same was not great, yeah. basically. Um, you know, it was an introduction to how sex should be at college that really gave kind of no information about what sex meant, what relationships would look like, um, what students should really be doing to care for each other. Mm -hmm. It was just a kind of risk avoidance lecture yeah. by the administration telling students, you need to get consent. This is what consent looks like. Otherwise you're in trouble. Stay away from that. But otherwise, hands off. That's, that's um, as much about mitigating the university's risk as it is about the risk of absolutely. the yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so why I wrote the book, I mean, I've always been interested in questions of culture, society, and ethics. Um, I'm a columnist at the Washington Post, and currently my byline says, Christine Emba writes about ideas and society, which is kind <laughs> of everything. <laughs> um but during the Me Too movement, the Me Too moment in you know, 2017, 2018, I was just so fascinated by the dynamics there. Um, and I was writing a lot about those cases, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, et cetera. And I thought that moment was really galvanizing. First, it showed that the problems with sort of sex and consent and how women and men interact, the problems that many people kind of thought were resolved by the sexual revolution and by the feminist movement had not been resolved. They hadn't gone away. And some of the cases during Me Too had really clear answers, right? You know, Harvey Weinstein, you should not, in fact, lock your assistants into hotel rooms and sexually assault them. But other cases, and in fact, some of the cases that got, you know, the most discussion were tricky. You know, they surfaced tricky issues that weren't so easily resolved and that were affecting our sexual culture. So you think of stories like Cat Person mm -hmm. or the Aziz Ansari affair yeah. where, you know, it's not as clear as somebody was raped or this was actually non-consensual. And yet they resonated with so many women and some men too, 
because every it seemed like everybody had their own story. And I wanted to dig into those more personal gray area questions more deeply, figuring out what kind of was ailing our sexual culture, why everybody seemed to have entered into this malaise that brought them into these situations so often that they found cat person relatable. And so (laughs) (laughs) that led to a lot of other questions. No, it was, I, I mean, Melissa, maybe you saw this among your female friends, but when that story came out, like every woman shared and was like, oh yeah, yeah, that, that happened to me. Or like, oh, oh I can yeah. relate to this. Yeah, it sucked, but 100%. it's normal, right? Yeah. And I thought that was really sad and disturbing and also clearly showed that there was like some underlying problem right. with how we conceived of or experiencing our sexual culture um, that wasn't really being talked about. So I wanted to figure out what it was, basically. What are the assumptions that we were holding that you know, weren't serving us. Where did we think the sexual revolution and the feminist movements should have taken us? And how did that differ from where we had clearly ended up, which is, you know, clearly not a good place? Um, Where was consent in all of this? Like, what would that mean? I kind of wanted to move the conversation from, you know, oh, wow, me too. These cases are bad. I feel sad to, okay, this thing is happening. It feels bad for all of us what do we do about it? What's the real problem here? Where do we go next? Yeah, no, I, um, one of the things that I loved about the book was that you really brought sort of your journalistic talents to bear. And I felt like that was such an effective sort of entry point or way to approach this conversation as opposed to sort of, uh, you know, a merely like sort of polemic approach or just sort of uh, even like a memoir kind of um, the interviews are like unbelievable. I mean, just some of them are quite like breathtaking and heartbreaking. And um, but but um, uh, I really appreciated uh, all the people that we meet through the book strike you as real people, not sort of like uh, avatars for a particular problem, but the way that even they themselves sort of unpack their predicament is, is just so, um, so, so helpful in, in, uh, in, in sort of laying out your argument. So talk a bit about sort of your intentions in the way you wrote Rethinking Sex and, and um, sort of the decision to have it sort of driven to to a certain extent by these interviews, these conversations you've had with others? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I'm really glad that it resonated with you in that way. That was sort of what I hoped for. Honestly, when I started, when I conceived of this project, it was an almost academic question. Um, Oh, like I've been covering these sex tales, the Me Too movement. So like, how do I figure out what's going on next? But as I started digging into it and talking to people, so many more questions arose. And I was really pulled along just by the conversations I was having. I mean, it started out as an academic question, but what prompted the academic question was the stories that I kept hearing from women and men, uh, friends who I talked to, people who I ran into at parties. Frankly, if you as a journalist are writing about sex and you mention that to anyone, 
what you'll find is that people have so many thoughts and so many confusions and sometimes in fact feel a bit silenced by the culture like they they feel like they can't they don't have space to express their concerns or confusion because that doing so would make them like a bad feminist or you know they wouldn't it's not progressive to say that you found that you find the sexual culture hurtful. It's kind of uncool to say that you, you know, want commitment and love and can't find it. But people really want space to to vent in some mm. ways, to sort of work through their feelings and also in having these conversations. I found that a lot of people had these sort of assumptions about sex or mm-hmm. almost stories that they were living by. And then when I would ask them more about it, they were sort of like, I don't, I don't know why I Mm -hmm. do this thing that I do. Mm. I don't know why I said that. So like, there was this one story, you know, about the woman who I'm talking to, who sort of brags about how she ordered a guy off of Tinder. And I think this is really funny. And then I'm like, is it though? Yeah. (laughs) And thinking through what she said, because she's never really thought about how she's conceiving of sex and why she's like actually that's kind of terrible (laughs) now that i think about it yeah um and almost this this unpacking of the mores that we live under but haven't examined the assumptions that the rules that we play by that we hadn't really realized are rules and hadn't really realized were helping or hurting us the stories were what really made those kind of come alive and that's where you saw them in action yeah yeah i I think there are so many, I think, powerful things that you do in this book. But I, th- I think the most, the thing that's going to be most striking to folks is is the message that's actually on the book jacket, which of course you uh, expand upon in the book. But just the message that, like, giving people the permission to, uh, 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 so the book jacket reads: uh, Christine Emba has a message for women who feel let down by today's sexual culture. You're not crazy. The thing you sense is wrong is wrong. Uh, and, and in that way, like I found this book to be more empowering than so much that sort of like passes itself off as empowering because it was just like, let's look at like reality. Let's look at the reality of what's playing out. And so how, how important do you think it was to send to, to send that that message, that that sort of permission to take these conversations uh, more public and more out in the open. Cause I, I agree and Melissa mm-hmm. and I have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, I completely agree with you. There's like this, this hesitancy to acknowledge people's feelings, which is so odd because we have such like a feeling oriented culture, such a therapeutic culture. And yet, this is one area where people are sort of inhibited from accessing their feelings. So uh, yeah, just talk about that, 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 that message on the book jacket and why, why you thought that was a important message to send. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think honesty is really important if you want to create change, basically. I mean, one of the, one of the galvanizing things about the Me Too movement, you know, church to all of these movements is that, people suddenly started telling the truth about their experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by one person, you know, saying this, look, I'm going to admit it, this is a thing that happened to me, that allowed more people to enter the conversation and say, oh, this happened to me too, this happened, what do we do to change this? 
And I think especially with sex um, in in kind of the sort of secular milieu that most of us live and swim in, even if those aren't our beliefs, there's almost a set of rules Mm -hmm. around how we talk about sex, um, what we're allowed to say as a woman or a man um, to be sort of good modern people to be mm. seen as progressive or smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there there are so many cases, I think, where women especially, you know, there's this pressure to be, you know, you have to be empowered and agential. And so if you if you say that, you know, you want to be cared for or you don't love having sex with strangers or like experimenting with all sorts of kinks doesn't actually make you happy, it you almost get the feeling that you're letting the side down somehow (laughs) that you're not being a good modern (laughs) Mm -hmm. or you know we've embraced a culture of sort of almost liberal individualism and autonomy where the highest good we all have sort of agreed under this kind of marketized sphere is to be your own person to be totally autonomous uh, not responsible for anyone else and that this is great actually we should all be chasing after this so to say no, wait, I want to be embedded in a community. Like, actually, I want to care about people and have them care about me. Being totally autonomous is, in fact, lonely. feels a little bit taboo. It's like Mm -hmm. saying, it's like you're rejecting this whole structure that we live in. But I think that being honest about reality is the way that we can then have a conversation about it. Mm. You know, I was trying to, this is kind of what I meant by a provocation. It's, you know, not that I'm trying to go out and make people upset necessarily, but to push us towards having these honest conversations about what our sexual culture looks like versus what we actually want, Mm. who we are as people, what we really believe sex means, because then you can actually build something on the truth, you know, that you finally made visible. And also I, I want people to feel less alone. Yes. (laughs) Yes, Yes. Yes. That's a big part of it too. I mean, it's, I think it's really hard for women and many of the women I talked to who said, I feel, you know, really uncomfortable with the way things are going, but I feel like I can't tell anyone Mm. because I'm, I feel like I'm the only person who feels this way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I hate all these hookups I'm having. They make me really sad, but clearly everyone else seems happy. Mm And it's the kind of mass delusion because no one else is happy either. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So giving people the freedom to to say what they think, they can find other people who they can talk to, who might agree with them actually, yeah. who they can then work with to create something different. Yeah, and it's funny that we we we've gone into this because I earlier I took a Peloton ride, um, and I said to Michael afterwards, I said wow, we're about to talk to Christine. This feels like a case study. So I took a Peloton ride with Cody Rigsby, whom I love. He's the most popular mm-hmm. Peloton instructor. And he has these rides called the XOXO rides. Um, he's done them about five times now, and I've taken all of them. They're 30 minutes long and about 15 minutes in. He goes through his fans' questions that they pose on Instagram, and they're usually relationship questions. Mm-hmm. And the questions that are asked at first, the first couple of rides, I thought, oh, people are just, you know, uh, asking these jokingly. And then after a while, and, and you know, this latest one, I'm like, people are really serious. They're really looking for answers. 
the, this loneliness issue, the assumption issue, the is anybody else feeling like this issue? But then the answers that Cody is giving is just an even bigger dive into all of the issues that you're talking about in this book of the sort of perpetuation of certain kinds of messaging to women, especially around um, sex and how much you should have it and how often and how good it should feel and it should be all about you and like this individualism issue. So it, it was so interesting taking this earlier thinking, wow, everybody needs to read Christine's book. <laughs> oh, I got to I got to check this out. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's the message I want to hear. Sure. <laughs> Not the sex stuff, just the read my book stuff. Yes. <laughs> so, so um chapter 6 after Michael and I read the book, we thought chapter chapter 6 was an incisive chapter. Um and you talk about this idea that um our sex lives are not private like we assume that they are or like we've been told that they are. Could you dig into that a little bit for our, for our listeners? Yeah, that <laughs> that chapter I found quite complicated um to write actually because it it does talk about it's kind of a rangy one. Right. Um basically in that chapter I'm arguing that I'm pushing back against again this sort of like often stated this is not actually a quiet norm but one that you hear again and again. Um, that, you know, what two consenting adults do is nobody's business. If you don't like the sex I'm having, like, just don't have it. Right. Um, this has nothing, my activities have nothing to do with you. And I actually don't think that that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's a false assumption in many ways. Um, that makes it harder for us to critique and correct the larger culture. I mean, I think that privacy is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily saying that we should right. go backwards in some way to a, a sort of like corner marketplace, mm-hmm. like judging of everybody's affairs. You, you talk about in the book, a sort of medieval sort of, uh, you know, mar- uh, marital sort of wedding night ceremonies. <laughs> right, so a wedding ceremony. We are taking that off. We are taking that off the table. <laughs> Uh, to be yeah, clear, to I be do clear. not think that your parents should be forced to watch you consummate your marriage. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but I also don't think that it's true that everything that you do by yourself is automatically private and personal and doesn't have any outflows. I think that we're social creatures, right? We, Whether we want to admit to it or not, we live in community with others. Um, sex is something that actually, you know, creates communities. It literally pulls people together. And the things that we enact in our bedrooms, the assumptions that we hold, you know, they do reach other people. We, the way that we act together sort of shapes, you know, the sexual marketplace in some ways, the experiences or ideas that we hold and then reenact or enact with other people that shapes their experience. And then they go on to, you know, be with or meet other people and, that shapes other experiences. And I just think, you know, I I find that this statement so, the statement that, you know, privacy is everything and, you know, I am my own person just is both false and kind of harmful because moving on to actually another chapter, but related, I talk about the influence of, you know, dating apps. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) which is a, a whole thing. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's you know great about dating apps, you can meet a lot of people, but one of the things that people find kind of awful about dating apps 
is that you're often just, you're a stranger, you're meeting another stranger because you have no sort of social ties or connections. You don't necessarily, they don't feel any responsibility or accountability for their behavior towards you because, you know, no one else is going to find out. Um, And that often leads to far worse experiences for people. And so privacy is in some ways unhelpful there. Yes. No, I, I thought all... that was such, mm-hmm. I, it, I had not mm-hmm. thought about that before. Your insight that um, that uh, sort of uh, when sort of dating relationships uh, took place in communities, like there, there was a sense that like, oh, if, if, if you wrong this person, like your friends will find out, like people in the community will find out and you will be judged for how you, uh, for you, how you treat that person. And you even like say, you know, even in the college environment, like if you were, if you were dating someone who, uh, on campus, like there, yes, it was like weakened to an extent, but there was still that sort of social expectation, pressure, accountability there. Um, but it, yeah, I just thought it was so, so interesting to, to think that um, that yeah, on, on on these apps, that it's it is it's it's isolated. It can be um, uh, uh, like the story that you talk about in that chapter. It can be um, uh, sort of almost instantaneous. Uh, um, so so yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really really interesting. Yeah, and I mean the thing about these social structures that we kind of used to be more embedded in when you would meet someone through your church or your friends or at school is sometimes that could feel oppressive. Like everybody knows that you like went on a date with this person and they ask you about it. Those were in some ways webs of care, you know, like people were looking out for you and you had recourse. You could find someone to complain to Mm -hmm. if somebody was treating you really poorly, if, you know, other women needed to watch out for this guy because he was a bad guy. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have those webs, when we cut ourselves off entirely, that often leads to, again, less ability to, you know, correct the culture, less ability to call out or name bad behaviors. And that's not actually helping a lot of people. Christine, I really, really desperately wanted to get through this interview without raising this, but we have to, we have to talk about the West Elm guy. I knew it. We, 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 I know. Oh we, did, we did not discuss well sometimes, Kayla, before this interview. And I knew Michael, I could see the wheels turning. We need to, I mean, right? Like that's exactly. <laughs> we need to talk about what's exactly <laughs> what. That's exactly what you're talking about here. And what was so interesting is like, um, there was this. Uh, it wasn't stated out loud, but sort of what organically came out of that was like people saying, like, having to build their own sort of social network built around this dude, <laughs> um, like, <laughs> right. like some kind of accountability structure. Um, do you want to explain West Elm, Caleb? For, <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> so, this is, yeah, this was a fascinating moment in our time. Um, but <laughs> basically in New York, apparently there is this guy, um, Notably handsome, 6'4", had a mustache and worked at West Elm. Um, And he was on the dating apps. (laughs) And he matched, I guess he was like matching with multiple women and would like be seeing all of them and like like sleep with one the night before the next morning, be like onto this other woman while like still chatting with the last one and like had all the stuff going on. And somehow the women, like multiple women who he was dating at the same time or sort of dating, 
found each other on the TikTok platform and were like sharing how they were like ghosted by this guy or whatever. And other women were like, wait, that that guy? He's he's talking to me too. And then the next one, oh, that guy? We're all talking to the same guy? How is he doing this? And it raised really interesting questions on both sides, right? Because first, there was this question of like, okay, is he doing something wrong mm-hmm. by yes. seeing yep. multiple right. people? He didn't say he was committed to any of them. But I think it was actually, and I think it, you know, his privacy, like now all of these companies were like calling him out on Twitter. Like mm-hmm. his name was, it. pictures of him were being circulated online. People found his address. That all seems bad. I don't think we should have actually been harassing him. But it was also interesting that having this network and like talking about the activities of this person, like how, what people defined as mistreatment allowed us to talk about, okay, is this wrong? Like are the behaviors that he's engaging in bad? Do we find those acceptable sort of either as a society or as a group of 30 to 40 <laughs> women in Manhattan, like, is this something that we should accept? Yes. Um, and there, that conversation, I think, doesn't really happen unless there, there are more people involved. Yeah. And also, that's a conversation that is bigger than, you know, a consent question, yes. right? Like, there's a difference between, yeah, if, if everybody said, West Elm, Caleb, Caleb sexually assaulted me, that's a clear-cut case. Yes. but this person, you know, hurt me, like used me in some way. Like it wasn't illegal what he did or anything, but it still seems wrong. Mm. What do we do with that? I think those are still valuable questions to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about sort of in the last two chapters, the, the, the ethic that you're sort of putting forward, or at least sort of the the sort of framing questions that you think could um, could uh, uh, could could um, drive this new ethic, and I'll, I'll sort of ask my follow up question before I let you answer the first question, which is, I I was I was reading and I was interested in about how you viewed this project. Sort of is this project sort of Christine Emba's ideal uh, sort of uh, um, uh, cultural approach to these questions? Or is this sort of Christine Emba's solution for like what what is culturally plausible? Um, uh, uh, in, in other words, if, if you could wave a wand, is what you lay out in the last two chapters the sort of approach everyone would have? Or is what you lay out like what you think is um, uh, like an aspirational, but like attainable given current like cultural presumption. So what's the ethic? And then what are you trying to do in those last two chapters? Mm, that's, that's a deep one. Um, so how do I get to the ethic? Well, we'll start from what I think is not an ethic. One of the threads that weaves throughout the entire book is a critique of consent culture, mm-hmm. you know, which is consent as the only standard by which we can judge whether sex was wrong or not. Either the person didn't consent and it was rape and that's bad. We know that's bad. Yeah. 
or the person did consent and past that, you know, we can't cast any judgment all, you know, people can do whatever they want to as long as they consent. And I argue that consent is a necessary floor for sex. Like, obviously you have to have consent, Um, but it's, it's not a ceiling. It's a terrible ceiling. You know, if we are only asking ourselves, did I not criminally assault someone? The bar is on the floor. Like that's (laughs) a woman said to me, the bar is in hell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, I argue that consent is a legal criterion. Like it will keep you out of jail. That's good. But we want something more for our relationships, for our encounters with other people, for how we experience sex, hopefully for our culture. We want a higher standard than not strictly illegal. And so in the latter chapters, I propose sort of an an ethic, um, not just a legal criterion, but how do we think about how to have actually good and moral sex? Because I also think that it's important to reclaim the ability to say some things are good and some things are bad, mm-hmm. not just, well, you consented, so hands off, we can't talk about it anymore. And the ethic that I propose is willing the good of the other, which um, is a phrase by St. Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. Aristotle by way of St. Thomas Aquinas. And it was his definition actually of love, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily romantic love, but like love as a good. And willing the good of the other means caring as much about the other person as you would care about yourself. Um, but it's, I think it's actually more than just kind of the golden rule, although clearly, you know, empathy, et cetera, is, is part of that. It also suggests that you have to know what the good is mm. um, and seek what the good would be for a person. Mm. So that then has further implications. How do you know what the good is for a person or even yourself? Like you might have to know them, <laughs> actually. Um, if you're in a state where you've been drinking or you know something else is going on, maybe you're not in the position to be really seeking the good of the other person, right. in which case you should refrain right. um, from having sex. It you know calls for responsibility um, to ourselves and to others. It, car- it calls for a baseline of care, of love. Hmm. Um, and I think that that is, that is my ideal. Um, and I would say it's an ideal, it's an ethic, it's something to aspire to. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily think that people will reach that in every you know encounter that they have. Sure. But I think even if you're trying to do that mm. and you fail, yeah. you're already like several steps ahead <laughs> yeah. from where we are now. We're, we're not even trying, we're just like trying not to go to jail basically. Yeah, no, there's a, um, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, Dallas Willard is an important person for me. And in his book, Divine Conspiracy, on the first three pages, he opens up with a story that uh, this psychologist by the name of Robert Coles uh, tells. Robert Coles was a psychologist who uh, studied children and uh, sort of their moral uh, worlds and decision making, and uh, he taught an ethics class at Harvard. And uh, there was uh, uh, there was a female student who 
had an awful time in this class and they had a sort of exit interview after the, at the end of the semester. And during the interview, she says something like, um, uh, uh, well, she, she tells him that, um, during the class, so she uh, came from a lower income background. She was working. Uh, she was working while she was in college, and she was propositioned during class by uh, other students who said, "You know, it looks like you need some money. Why don't we have an exchange here?" Basically, and wow. she she poses to Robert Cole. She says. Um, a, a question that kind of haunted him, which is, um, uh, what does it, what does it really matter if we know, uh, if if we know what it means, um, if we have a conception of what is good, if we don't try to be good, uh, and he said that uh, that haunted him, and, and Willard takes that as a jumping off point for. Exactly the kind of uh, uh, inquiry that you're uh, talking about, in the sense of you know what what does love really require, um, and what does it mean to not just have ideas about you know, what's good, but what does it mean to actually become the kind of person who would do what's good? Um, and so, I'm I'm really excited for this book to get in folks' hands. It comes out on Tuesday um, and we're excited for you. We're thankful for you for this project. We have friends that we can't wait to uh, read this book. Um, we're having conversations all the time with each other and with folks that we know uh, about these kinds of things. And I think you're um, gonna give, give people a lot of permission to feel what they feel and ask questions that they uh, have always sort of asked themselves and sort of whispered uh, to their most sort of like uh, trusted confidants, but that actually need to be uh, uh, need to be taken up, uh, I think, in a bit more of a public way. And so we're rooting for you. We hope folks uh, get a rethinking sex that comes out uh, on uh, March 22nd, right? That's the Tuesday, Tuesday March the 22nd. 22nd. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I mean, I do think this is really important. As I said, it started out as a little bit of an academic project, but it became kind of a personal project in mm -hmm. some ways. As my editor told me many times when I was whining about how emotional I felt about parts <laughs> of writing this, often authors write the book that they themselves need to read. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of book that I almost wish that I'd read, that I had to read when I was younger and trying to navigate this space for myself and i think if you talk to young people or older people men and women i do feel like there's a hunger a longing for actually a higher standard like how how to be good how to actually find you know the love and care that we all long for as yes. human people with human dignity how do we flourish and so i hope this starts a conversation yeah. about that um and I'm really thankful for you guys for bringing me on to discuss it with you. Yeah. This was really fun. Yeah, Christine, I have a vision. And it's in 10 years, you're going to return to Princeton. And the class will have been <laughs> obliterated. <laughs> and it'll just be folks put in a room to read your book. And that will be uh, that will yes. be the new 
that will be the new course. Um, and so may it be so, may it be so. And uh, uh, Christine, we'll, we'll look forward to following how this conversation unfolds and uh, uh, thankful for your friendship uh, uh, and, and we're rooting for you. Thanks. Talk to you later, yeah, guys. Bye. See you. Well, there it is. Uh, that was Christine Emba with Washington Post. Christine is the author of Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Uh, the book comes out this Tuesday, March 22nd. You can get it everywhere where they sell uh, books. Uh, and uh, we encourage you to check out this work. Melissa isn't... Uh, we just think so highly of Christine. And we so what, what a great conversation. And uh, there's... You know, it's so good to talk with some with an author about a book where, uh, you know, we had we talked to Christine for thirty five minutes, and you know, uh, uh, our desire to talk with her and ask different questions yes. only grew as as we got into the conversation. That's when you know you're dealing with a with a book that's gonna really, I think, open up conversation and really make an impact. That's right. I think. Anybody who is currently dating, has dated in their most recent past, is thinking about that. Um, I think you'll highly, highly relate to this book or see some, see yourself in this book in some ways and the, the different people that Christine interviews. Yeah, no, it was a really important conversation. We hope to have more like it. But uh, until then, uh, this has been Where is the Love? Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs>